Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. Welcome to the ASD Engage podcast. In this episode, we focus on the issues that may exist for people on the spectrum in terms of how they process everyday sensory information. In fact, research suggests that up to 96% of children with ASD have sensory processing difficulties. We'll be exploring exactly what sensory processing is and how differences among children can affect behavior and have a profound effect on their lives. To delve into these topics, we're talking with Moira Penna, an occupational therapist at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital. Moira is an expert on all things sensory and has experience not only working at the hospital, but also in private practice and school board settings. She's also done a tremendous amount of parent education about sensory processing and created valuable tools that we'll share with our listeners at the end of this episode. So welcome, Moira. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today on this podcast episode. Um, can we start off maybe with you explaining what you actually do at Holland Bloorview and also how you got involved with the ASD population? Sure. Thank you for having me. So I'm an occupational therapist, uh, which means that I look at three areas of kids' lives, and that's um, uh, self-care, so how a child may look after themselves, like toothbrushing and haircutting and so on, uh, productivity, so going to school, Um, and leisure, so what a child and their families like to do. And what we do is we enable, um, we provide strategies and and work with the parents to enable um, all of those areas. And I've been here for 13 years um, working with uh, kids and autistic youth um, and love it. So I used to do more, um, I do assessments and I also do consultations. I do a lot of training for parents. So, yeah, it's a, I love my job. That's great. Tell us a little, bit, a little bit about how you got into working in ASD. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. So when I became an OT, I actually um, wanted to work uh, with adults. Um, and I wanted to work in the field of eating disorders. So I moved to England because I couldn't find a job here in Toronto. And... I worked in London, England, uh, in an inpatient uh, unit, and um, what I noticed was that there was a group of women who had lots of challenges around eating, um, but their issues weren't around wanting to lose weight or to look a certain way, which is very much something that happens in anorexia. It was all about the sensations that they felt whenever they ate and how they just couldn't. And so they would tell me, you know, the smell of that food or the texture of that food or how it feels in my mouth and all that. And so it was so interesting to me. And now, you know, 20 years later, um, I realized that um, they were autistic, this group of women that no one could figure it out. Um, And the team actually, you know, used to identify them as eating disorders, NOS, not otherwise specified, because they just could not figure out. And of course, now we know so much more. And we recognize that feeding and eating is such um, a a challenge because of sensory issues. And that's what I kind of became interested in that whole field. I came back to Canada, and I wanted to learn more. And I knew that the the field of sensory processing and kids was really um, where all the research was at. And that's how I got into it. Yeah, so it was actually quite a natural evolution for you almost yeah. into this field. It, it good, was. Yeah. It was It was such an interest. And then I came back and I looked as mm-hmm. to who was doing the kind of work that I wanted to do. 
And I contacted her, and she took me on. So she trained me for seven years before I came to Glorvia. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. oh, well, we're glad you're here. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, okay, so when we hear the word sensory, people typically think of the five senses, like seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touching. But it's a lot more complex than that, right? So I'm wondering, can you just describe for us the different sensory systems? Yeah, so there is those five that we all know about. And there's actually three more. So there's eight in total. So, and the ones, the three that um, people don't hear about as often, I call them the hidden senses. And one of them is the vestibular sense. So it's your, the sense that tells you whether you're moving forwards or backwards, whether you're spinning in circles, whether your head is upside down. And so you can imagine that if you are not secure in that sense, that the fear that that might bring up in you, right? So if you're not completely sure as to, you know, where your body is in relation to gravity, um, that might make you anxious. And we see that all the time mm-hmm. in our in the kids that we work with. So that's the vestibular sense. Um, is that the one that uh, we would experience on roller coasters and rides and stuff like absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and there's even more, like, you know, there's people who actually uh, seek vestibular sensations. So they, like, we call them sensory seekers. Uh-huh. So they love roller coasters and they love, you know, um, even, like, high... Um, almost dangerous kind of experiences. And and when you see kids, for example, jumping from high places, um, spinning, um, running back and forth, moving in a certain way, um, putting their face, uh, not their face, like like moving, putting themselves in positions that look kind of odd, what they're doing is activating their vestibular Mm. sense. Um, so that's one. And then the second hidden sense is the proprioceptive system. So proprio means um, uh, like our own, so property. And uh, pro- inception means feeling. So is your feeling of yourself, your body boundaries. Like we tend to call it like body awareness. And of course, what you may see is that um, a person on the spectrum might actually come too close to you or lean into you or push into you because what they're trying to determine is where their body ends and somebody else's begins. And so, again, you could be seeking proprioceptive input. So, for example, you could sort of grab a pencil and just break it because you're holding something so tightly. Um, And also that sense of like, for example, you you know when you go into the fridge and you open the door and you pick up the milk and you are predicting how um, heavy that milk is going to be. And then it goes because, you know, all of like that actual uh, milk is actually empty. So all that might not be uh, working as effectively um, when you have sensory processing issues. So you're constantly, it's what, I, it's what we call your grading of movement is kind of off. So it's either you, you do things really hard or really light. It's really hard for you to actually grade your movement. So that's proprioception. Mm. Um, And then the last one is your interoception. And interoception, uh, intro means inner, inception means feeling. And so it's how your internal, um, how you get cues from your body internally. So are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you need to go to the bathroom? All these signals that we get Sometimes in people who experience sensory processing differences, they either don't get those signals as quickly as we want them to get it, or they get them too much. So they have an underreaction and an overreaction. So very often what we see is that um, kids and youth on the spectrum are not able to tell us when they're hungry, or they may not feel the hunger pangs that we all do but of course they're hungry and so they just become cranky because they haven't eaten in hours but they're not able to tell us you know it's actually I need to eat or thirsty how many kids don't drink water or they just don't seek um it's because they're not getting those cues and of course toilet training toileting is a whole <laughs> thing and it's very often because of these interoceptive cues that they are not getting in time to make it to the bathroom mm. These hidden senses are really important. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Yeah. They are. yeah. And it's interesting how they're so closely linked to the feeding issues that we talked about. Yeah. Toileting. And I'm guessing also sleep. 
sleep is another sensory thing that children aren't really that aware of and don't know that they needed that. Of course. So, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I think it's so important for us, you know, when we're talking about reframing behavior from a sensory perspective, and of course, for anybody, if you're not sleeping well, you are going to be cranky and unhappy mm-hmm. the next day. So it works for everyone. So, of course, with uh, our kids, we just need to have that understanding that if, if sleep is constantly disrupted for whatever reason, then, yeah, it's going to be harder to actually function to your best mm-hmm. potential the next day. Mm-hmm. So I think even just being able to reframe what we see and to know that it's not um, your fault as a parent or the fault of the child. It really is the sensory systems that are not um, functioning together as effectively as we want them to be. Mm-hmm. So... Um Building on some of what you've just talked about, what does sensory processing actually mean then? And you kind of alluded to it before as well when you talked about sensory seeking versus sensory aversion. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a bit about those? Yeah, sure. So when we think about sensory processing, so it's the way that you take in information. So for example, right now we're in a room um, there might be sounds outside. Um, you might be moving, and you know we were talking about fidgeting before, like the way we fidget. Um, you might be thinking of something that may have happened at your home before, but you're able to actually tune that out because you're here and you're doing an interview. Okay, so you're able to actually uh, your sensory systems are able to tune out what's irrelevant, and. A lot of our kids can't do that. So all they can actually think about is the noise outside or um, what what happened in the morning. It's, it's very hard for them to tune out irrelevant information, sensory input. So that's when you take it in. And then the brain amazingly actually organizes all that in an unconscious manner. So effective sensory processing means that you don't have to think about it. You just do it. You just... Um, notice what you need to notice like in a school for example um, you, you're listening to the teacher and you're tuning out everything else and how many of, of our kids cannot do that right they just especially noises they just can't manage the cafeteria or whatever else they're not able to tune it out so you process all that information unconsciously and the issue comes when all of a sudden it comes to your conscious brain it takes up real state in that brain so then, of course, you don't have as much space to problem solve, to use your nice words like please and thank yous, because your mind is being taken mm. over by sensory input that should be processed in an unconscious way that you don't even notice. And then your last step for sensory processing is execution. So it's, it's your behavior. It's, you know, how do you manage less sensory input? How do you, what we call, modulate it? So how does it? How does your reaction match the sensory input? So, of course, if you are a sensory seeker, it means that you're, you know, you're looking for more because it's almost like you need more to be able to bring yourself up to a regulated state or what we call like a calm and alert state. Um, so, so you could be a seeker. Um, or you could be, and this is what we see most often, and we call it sensory over-responsivity. So you are overreacting to sensations that um, other people can manage. So the texture of foods, uh, the sounds, the tags in clothing, the seams in your socks, oh my, and we can go for a whole list, right? Yeah. All these sensations that you're not modulating as well as um, a brain uh, as well as you know you may want to and then you go into this sensory overwhelm where then you're not not able to function mm-hmm. that's great um, and clarifies a lot actually um, I've always wanted to know what does or how does an OT or an occupational therapist actually go about assessing sensory processing so the same way, we OTs assess um, three areas of life. Remember that self-care, productivity, and leisure. So what you need to do. So how do you manage throughout your morning routine? Uh, what you want to do, that will be your leisure, like what kinds of activities you want to do during the day, and what you have to do. So as an adult, that would be work or volunteer work. For kids, that's going to school. So we look at those three areas, 
Um, and we use, we use um, what we call an eclectic approach. We use different approaches, behavioral lenses, sensory lenses, um, all kinds of different things um, for us to actually become detectives, to try to figure out what's driving a behavior. Mm-hmm. And then in partnership with families, we then work together to uh, come up with strategies and solutions to be able to then manage your days um, better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really liked the way you explained uh, sensory processing and how that idea, if if it's not happening on an unconscious level, it's actually taking a lot of mental effort, right? And so for people on the outside, right, to do that perspective taking about what might be going on, that's really important, that it might be taking so much mental energy to manage that sensory processing. And so professionals such as us who are working with kids, we might often use kind of like an, an iceberg model to explain children's behavior. So we're, we could explain it as seeing like certain uh, feelings or behaviors that are seen at the surface, but it's also important to consider what might be underlying them, just as a huge portion of the iceberg is hidden beneath the water. So for us, like at Holland Bloor, we see a lot of young children, especially under five. And in those young children who can't tell us what's going on inside them, we often focus on what we see that they're doing or how they're acting, which can look like sometimes tantrums or meltdowns. So I'm curious, Moira, in your experience, what do parents come in typically attributing those behaviors to? You know, it. That, that was so well said, and I use iceberg models all the time, and most often parents are here because uh, their, their child is tantruming and having all kinds of meltdowns, and it's just very hard, for example, to do a transition from the home to the park um, and so on. And so what, what we do is we actually look at like all the possible, we, we brainstorm, and what could be all the possible reasons why this behavior is coming up. And so I always talk to uh, families about, okay, well, you know, what could be your sensory triggers? And it's so interesting because, you know, even things like what I call eat, play, rest, you know, are they eating? Well, not really. How long do they go? Like, even if we just focus on those basic levels of what can be done and, and, and not asking a child if they're hungry, just offering the food and trying and, you know, the rest, like the sleep, as you said, um, and, and are they playing? Those things can, can help you be regulated in such a way that maybe then sensory input is not as overwhelming or noxious. So mm. even just focusing on that, and um, we do a lot, we talk a lot about, you know, what could, we, what could be happening in your environmental context at home that is causing this behavior? So for example, if we go back to eating, you know, is there a garbage uh, can nearby? Could the smell be causing something that the child is not wanting to go oh. into the kitchen? Could we move, you know, even as simple, like I remember working with a kid who, we just couldn't figure out what the issue was about going into the kitchen. He would not go into the kitchen. He would just cry and melt down the minute we thought he had to cross that threshold. Um, so we looked at the environment. Okay, are there noises that we're not... Like, where's the fridge? Is that fridge making a noise that somehow we can't... We're tuning out that he can hear. What? And, of course, the child couldn't tell us. We went through... Um, you know, is is there something around uh, the chair, like the texture of the chair? Is it too hard? Is it too soft? Um, to eventually coming down to, oh my goodness, there's the garbage is right there. It's the smell. And once we removed the garbage, that was it. Wow. It was that his sense of smell was so sensitive. So he was, again, over-responsive to smell. And, you know, your sense of smell actually is, is your one sensory system that doesn't get processed by your thalamus in your brain. So it goes straight to your limbic system, like to your emotional brain. Mm-hmm. So smells, you know, how, and, mm-hmm. and also to your memory. So you know how a smell can actually bring you back to like your grandma's house or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so smells also cause this emotional reaction. So, of course, what you're going to get first is the emotional meltdown. Because, you know, it's, 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 it's a direct sense. So by the same token, what you can do is use smells strategically to help you manage 
emotions. Mm. So what are the smells that your child likes? Is it lavender? Is it lemon? What is it? Can you, before you go into a difficult transition, can you have that child smell um, that, that uh, prefers scent? And will that then help you in managing that transition? So there's many ways mm -hmm. that we can use sensations to actually support function. And that's what um, I help parents figure out. I love that example, too, because I think it's really reassuring for parents, too, that because they're coming in and a lot of times these behaviors seem mysterious. What's causing them, right? And then you as a professional are also having to do a lot of detective work to break it down. What might be going on? What might be triggering that emotional reaction? Absolutely. And, you know, we always have to go when we're working, when we're talking about kids, my own kids, all kids, is we have to go from the premise of, as, as Dr. Ross Green, who wrote The Explosive Child, which I actually recommend that book a lot. I love that book. But he talks about how, you know, kids do well if they can. And it's not kids do well if they want, right? It's kids do well if they can. So if they can't, if what we're seeing is like over and over these over-the-top behaviors, then we as adults need to help figure out what it is that may be causing that actual uh, barrier mm -hmm. for that child to be able to to function to their potential. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, definitely working together and and seeing okay, and and everything that we do from a sensory lens is is what we call a proactive solutions model. So we prevent we prevent meltdowns from happening as opposed to what a lot of people do is they give a sensory input or a sensory toy after the meltdown. Well, it's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do is, is to actually look for patterns. When are the most challenging times in your day? How can you make, you know, what can you do to help that child enable um, function during that time? And, and actually, after a meltdown, like, there is no talking. There's no, you know, we do a lot of, like, you know, what did you do wrong? And asking kids to apologize. You know, most kids don't even remember what their meltdown was about because it's such an emotional heightened state. So we need to do everything that we do is more around preventing proactive solutions that are not in the heat of the moment because nothing works in the heat of the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I love Ross Green too. And I like what you commented on about um, children do well when they can because that also reframes the idea like they're not doing it intentionally. Right? No. They're just overwhelmed. And it may feel like they're, you know, they just know exactly what to do. To <laughs> yeah. you. Like, definitely. You know, sometimes I, like, I actually... They do feel good at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, you know, with my own kids, I have to stop and say, you know, yeah. like, this is, like, is he seriously... <laughs> He's, you know, and I'm thinking, he's eight. Of course he's not. Is he seriously, like, manipulating me in such a... And then, of course, you have to step back. And this is another thing that, that we as parents and as, you know, when we're looking at um, uh, using a sensory lens, is this idea of, you know, stopping and how can we co-regulate? What can we do as parents with our own tone of voice, mm -hmm. with our own body language, with how we talk to children, what can we do so that then they're actually modeling that, at least that behavior in some way. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, like the yelling and, and, and the, the, what, like, you know, the punishment, rewarding, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Well, is there something else that we can do? Can we step back? Can you count to 10 before you react? And to know that this is a child, and no, they're not, they don't have the executive thinking skills to actually, um, do things to manipulate you um, because executive functioning skills don't really develop until the age of 25 and then some, right? And then some, <laughs> as we all know. So so really thinking and looking at that iceberg and, and what the triggers, what could be happening and um, going at it from that, from that point of view. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. So Moira, in our pre-interview, before recording today's episode, you highlighted that a child's first birthday can be a benchmark for helping parents notice the child's sensory sensitivities. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you meant from that? Yeah, so if you think of a birthday, there's a lot of sensory input going on. So, you know, the singing of the happy birthday, and very often what you will see um, uh, if the child it has sensory processing issues is that they will cover their ears. And they would, or they could get super loud because, you know, 
when kids are able to control sound, then they become louder to try to actually dampen the sound that they hear in the background. So, so it's, mm. it's very interesting because sometimes people will say, well, look, he's very loud. Of course, he's not sensory sensitive in, in the auditory sense. I'm like, if he's very loud, what he's doing, he's trying to block the noise that's coming at him with, with a noise that he can control. So, <laughs> so in a first birthday party, there's also like lots of people. So again, um, re remember kids will react to just having, you know, a, a, to crowds. Um, and, and the echoes that may happen with the singing and the clapping. The clapping is a big one and, and you will see kids running out of the room. And also, you know, what's interesting about birthday parties, um, because sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's funny that we do them for kids because kids get really stressed, like in general. <laughs> and but the reason why that is, is because they come over aroused. Like they're almost like over, you know, it's a heightened state of sensation. And when you are in a state like that, then sensory input is even more mm. um, powerful. So that's why it's so important to try and keep ourselves in a self-regulated state because then we can better manage sensory input. But say if you sort of, uh, you know, if, if you were late and you're already like anxious and there is, you know, you your sensory systems will kick in even more strongly. So there's a total link, and we know this from research, it's actually a proven link that um, anxiety will increase sensory over-responsivity, right? And so sometimes if we're able to manage the anxiety, we're then more able to manage the, sensa the sensation, um, the behavior output of the child. Yeah. It's funny you say that. That was the very next question I was going to ask you is, does anxiety play a role in the presentation of sensory behaviors? So very much so. Absolutely. And, and before we just used to say that because we saw it in practice and now we have more and more research that tells us that actually, you know, but we just don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. Is it the mm -hmm. fact that you're sensory over responsive? And so that makes you anxious because the world is unpredictable uh, because you don't know what's going to come at you. Or is it that you're anxious and that makes you more sensory over responsive? Because again, and so it, it's interesting, but there's definitely a link. Um, and sometimes you see like fascinating things like what we call interoceptive conditioning. So this idea, for example, um, a child going to school, when we get back to school, hopefully in the next <laughs> few weeks, a child going to school and actually um, uh, overreacting to the bell, right? Uh, to the sound of the bell. And eventually what happens is that the child has the same sensations just by the sight. Like the bell doesn't even have to go out. It's because their body has conditioned that response of over-responsive, um, over-reaction, overwhelm. And so they're already, it's already preempting that behavior without the thing going off at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, our bodies are so fascinating and, and how they adapt. Um, but that's what's going on there. So there's a definite link with it, anxiety and the over-responsive mm -hmm. presentation of sensory processing differences. Yeah. So it's interesting. So even the anticipation of the event creates the anxiety in the child it can yeah. it can so but at this by the same token look at all the things that you can do then right because then what you can do is actually work on um giving the child um lots of uh strategies and information and pictures as to what's going to happen to be able to manage that anxiety and then they might be able they might be better able to manage their bodily responses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting um I know you've kind of talked a little bit about this, but can you describe some of the common sensory behaviors um, that you see in the children with ASD? Um, okay, so remember I talked about modulation, and there's actually three different uh, types of sensory modulation issues. Um, the first one is sensory under-responsivity, and that's like S-U-R, sensory under-responsivity. So that would be a kid who you'll call their name, and they just did not react to their name being called. Again, all those interoception issues around not feeling things the way they should be feeling it. Hunger, thirst, going to the bathroom. These kids tend to like to lie on the floor a lot because it's almost like they need, you know, they're under-responsive, so they need more input. They need more, almost like more touch. And, mm -hmm. and, and they actually will um, come up to you and they 
they will push themselves against you they will ask you for like bear hugs and it, they're looking for sensations for them to be able to function also and 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 the responsive kids don't tend to have over-the-top behaviors they tend to sort of fall through the cracks but they're more like sort of in their own world <laughs> then you have your sensory over you know over responsive kids so you know everything is an issue the light so you have to wear sunglasses when you go out you have to wear a hat uh, the sounds they're covering their ears so of course you know you do want to give them a way for them to be able to manage that better so using noise cancelling headphones for example what I call ear defenders um, the noise the clothing I mean how many of the parents listening today I'm sure they're washing the clothing 10 times until it's soft enough and you know and how often do we hear that the parent is actually buying the same like 10 pairs of the same underwear because my goodness you finally found the right underwear that this child will actually wear I mean it's it's so interesting and the shoes you know how many of our kids it's winter time and they just want to wear crocs right mm -hmm. they can't manage the boots the snow suits the all like the clothing is such a big um, mm -hmm. issue and you can imagine how that if you're constantly worrying and stressing and anxious and overreacting to clothing, that's going to make life very difficult. Mm -hmm. Hair cutting, right? <laughs> hair cutting, like, like they can't handle the noise of the clipper. Going to the hairdresser. Like, even some kids, I've heard and I've worked with families whose kids could not shower because they felt like the the water, they're like pins, like the way, and the way they describe they think, you know, for kids who are speaking, who, um, I remember my, my first kid at Blurby, actually, I'll never forget him. He's, he was 12. Um, and he said to me, I can't be in the, in the classroom. And I go, why not? Because when the teacher writes on the blackboard, I mean, this is like 13 years ago, right? When the teacher writes on the blackboard, the noise that she makes with the chalk makes me feel like I have a hundred knives going into my body. And I remember thinking, well, that's a bit dramatic, <laughs> right? But the reality is that's how it feels. Yeah. Like that's, and that's what autistic people are telling us all the time. And, and what we're doing now in 2020 is that we believe it and mm. that we take that lived experience and we take it into a clinical practice because I may not be feeling that, but I can hear that that's how it feels to you. So it's no longer about over-dramatizing things. That's just how it feels. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and there's so many, and I'm sure lots of people, you know, there's so many behaviors that are happening because of these sensory um, processing issues. And then the last, because I talked about three, right? Like mm -hmm. SUR, sensory under-responsivity, SOR, sensory over-responsivity, which is where most of the research is actually, is in that cluster of kids. And then you have what we call sensory cravers. And so SC, sensory cravers are actually a, a cluster of kids that we don't really know a lot about because these kids, they seek sensation to such an outrageous extent. So they're, they're running against walls, uh, falling on purpose, uh, pushing others on purpose. Simply, it's not a, because they're trying to be mean. It's because they're trying to seek the sensation. They are... You might see it in the ways that they might bite um, things really hard. They break things. And yet we give them sensory, helpful sensory input, and it's, sometimes it's not helpful. It's because we're not quite sure what's going on with those kids. But those are rare. Usually we have a combination of the first two. But, it, you know, again, sensory processing is um, an extensive, like there's actually a uh, Two other types of presentations, more motor or like movement types of presentations. But I'm talking about the most common, which are sensory modulation issues, because 80% of the kids that we see in clinic will and will be kids that are having those sensory modulation issues. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because when you talk about the child reacting to the teacher writing on the chalkboard, a lot of people have this reaction to fingernails on a chalkboard. <laughs> Right, and it almost brings about this physical response in you. And imagine not being able to control yes. that. Like sitting in the classroom, and that's all you can think about is any minute those nails are going to go. Right, it's easy right. for us because we can control that. But I could have, couldn't imagine sitting there not being able to handle that anxiety. And then to go back to your point, Maureen, of um, the anticipation yeah. that that noise is going to come at me. And so then, of course, you can't think of learning, and you're not, you're not learning anything because all you're thinking about is, yeah. is that 
yeah. is that sensory input that's going to come at you. Yeah. Wow, that's such a good illustration. Um, there's often discussion also about how ASD can look very different from males versus females. Um, so is there a difference in the kinds of sensory behaviors you, you might see in girls versus the boys? Oh, yeah. This is a whole... like this is a, I don't know how much time we have. <laughs> but I'm going to keep it short. Because, um, girls and ASD is a whole different topic. But I would say when it comes to sensory processing, very often what you will see is that, um, of course, girls tend to be diagnosed way later than boys. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. But in terms of sensory, very often they enter the mental health channels so you know again this idea of like emotional issues come up and and very often they go into this eating disorders mm -hmm. sort of and again they don't fit because body image is not the issue at all so it's an inappropriate you know uh, they are being provided with sort of inappropriate or uh, ineffective uh, interventions um and so it's, all, it's very often with autistic women is that they realize they're on the spectrum when they're adults. It's very often very common, and they tell us this all the time. Um, but in terms of the sensory issues, uh, it, again, this sort of e uh, eating challenges, extreme picky eating is very much a, a presentation uh, in girls. The other thing about girls is that they tend to be in groups. Like, you know, as women, we like to be in our own groups, but they just... They, as opposed to boys that just tend to be like outwardly, they just rejected sometimes. You know, the girls they remain in groups, but they're almost like not participating in those groups. So, you know, as, as clinicians, we have to be so much more um, uh, like detectives when, when we're talking about, about girls. But, and then in sensations, again, with the sensory input, with girls, you would see like a fascination with like um, sparkles and, you know, like beanie babies to, or like the touch, the touch of things. Um, and like, you know, whatever, my little pony. And again, because those look like more kind of girly things, we don't tend to pay attention as much, but it is, it could be very much a sensory fixation of some kind, like a repetitive behavior that has a sensory flavor to it. But again, girls on ASD is, it's a topic that can go on and on for a long time. Right. <laughs> sure. I, yeah, actually, Moira, it's interesting that you highlight how kind of the trajectory of girls to getting diagnosed later and maybe entering kind of the mental health area first, because I see a lot of um, adolescents in therapy and a lot of girls who are coming, but they're coming because of things like social anxiety. And then it kind of unravels and we figure out, actually, they're they're on the spectrum, right? And so it's interesting, too, because if they're presenting and they're, and they're thinking that they have social anxiety... Um, sometimes you, you tease apart and you realize, oh, there's actually sensory aspects. So I can think of one um, adolescent girl who really didn't like eating uh, in, with other people. And it wasn't just about her own kind of like pickiness around food. It was around hearing chewing going on and being so dysregulated by that and so like, um, yeah, bothered that she couldn't be around it. Right? So she tried to, to preemptively keep herself out of those situations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I see that quite often. Um, you know, I, I had a, like a 10 year old who said to her dad, you're loud when you eat. And he's like, I keep my mouth closed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, it's very different. Um, autism in girls are very often misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some common misconceptions parents have with respect to the sensory behaviors that they might see? I think most of us can understand um, that people have sensory issues because, you know, it's quite obvious um, that, you know, if you're, if you're taking half an hour to get out the door because you don't have the right seam of the sock in the right spot for you to get out the door, then, you know, it is. But I think most people think it's, um, it's a control behavior. They think it's the child's being manipulative. They don't understand that actually sensory processing is unconscious for most of us. And so, of course, when we don't, if we're not able to understand it ourselves, if um, then it's very hard for us to under understand it in others. And I often say, you know, um, I remember, um, uh, I have two kids, but I remember um, when I was pregnant, and not that I particularly enjoy being pregnant, but I was looking forward 
to actually getting that you know when people get like this the sense of smell becomes really strong and then you feel like you're going to vomit and I was really looking forward to those sensory differences because I wanted to know what does it feel like to yeah. put myself in those in kids shoes and I actually never got it which I'm probably the only person in the world that was upset by that. Who, who's upset that I didn't get morning sickness or like any of that. Um, the only thing I did get was like by the end of my pregnancies is, you know, when you start to waddle because, because you're not able to see in front of you. And so your, your vestibular sense and your proprioceptive sense is off. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I could fall because your body is not giving, like your sens- sensory systems are not picking up um, those sensations accurately. Um, and you know, other, uh, people will tell me like, if you are in a lot of pain, all of a sudden lights are painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who experience concussions, they talk about this sensory auras. They, 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 they almost have these sensory experiences. So people in chronic pain will often tell me, my goodness, I cannot tolerate none of that. And that's what sensory processing issues are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we we do not um, understand as well as we should. Yeah, for sure. Because we've never had to experience yeah, it unless, yeah. unless you're pregnant <laughs> and unless, you get morning sickness. Exactly, <laughs> unless you get morning sickness. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was getting ready for today's recording, um, I was checking out different uh, websites about sensory processing. And on one ASD information website... I read that any of the senses might be over or under sensitive or both at different times. And you've kind of touched on that. But that sounds so unpredictable, right? (laughs) It's not necessarily consistently under sensitive or over sensitive. And it can change in different situations. So with that unpredictability, what kind of effect can that have on the child who's actually experiencing that, those sensory issues firsthand? And then what's the effect on the family who's surrounding them and watching that unpredictability and having to live with it? You know, it's, it's so interesting. I think as human beings, we like to put people in boxes. It's this. It's sensory under-responsivity. It's this. It's, you know, aut- and, you know, most kids don't read those criteria. <laughs> they don't fit nicely in the box that we want them to fit. And as human beings, none of us do. We're all complicated, complex people. And so, you know, when it comes to sensory processing, and I, th- I think this is why it's, it's difficult to understand. And even for clinicians, you know, um, many clinicians shy away sometimes from um, practicing in this way because it is unpredictable. But that's the name of the game when it comes to sensory processing. When it comes to brain function in general. I mean, our brains are such amazing things that we only know a little bit about, uh, you know, to this day. And so it's about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So meaning, you know, I, because I've been doing this for so long and that's the way that I practice, I can sort of catch patterns of like what the kid is doing and I can sort of tell you, but yeah, you know, very often, and especially if you're stressed, your reactions are going to be way over the top or the opposite. You could be in shutdown mode, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, life is stressful in many ways for everybody. So I, and I think also with sensory-based interventions, so the interventions that as clinicians, because some clinicians may be listening to this, you know, people get so discouraged because they say, oh, well, that didn't work. You know, well, well, it doesn't mean that it may not work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's not going to work next week. I mean, it is a process. We're looking for effective interventions. It's almost like a trial and error. It's what I call productive fails. Like if the first thing didn't work, well, that gives me information as to what I might try next. But it's not a failure because, again, nervous systems change all the time. And sensory processing is part of your, your nervous system. So it is going to change. It's just a given. Your child is not going to fit the one box. And... We have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Um, in some cases, young children with ASD might engage in self-injurious behavior, such as headbanging. And uh, I know in my assessment experience, that's one aspect of ASD that tends to be particularly distressing for parents when they're seeing their child uh, harming him or herself, and they're trying to keep the child safe. 
So how do you approach that topic with parents and help them to feel more empowered? That's a great question. And a tough one. <laughs> and that's what I think about self-injury in general. So, yes, you will see kids who will headbang or bite their hands or really push really hard against, against themselves um, in an attempt to get some sensation that somehow they feel is regulating in some way. But it is very hard to watch. I, you know, when it comes to self-injury, we always intervene. This is not something that we let happen because because it is not going to be good for the kid or or the person in the long run. So always intervene, number one. And can we then find um, adaptations? So maybe from biting your hand, can you then move on to biting something that feels, um, you know, something that sort of like has kind of the same kind of feeling but it maybe is like a toy thing or mm-hmm. um like that's what we use jewelry for example um if it's head banging can we provide the child with um deep pressure around the head in a and, and you know when you're looking for patterns of behavior before they're actually seeking the head banging um so whatever it is we try to to actually uh uh, provide the same input in a more helpful manner. Um, so that's what I would say. The other thing I would say about self-injury, so I'm going to say two things. So I told you about sensory modulation. There's another group that's that are called sensory-based motor disorders. And what we know from this group is that sometimes, and people on the spectrum will tell us time and time again, I cannot control my body. I cannot initiate a movement or stop a movement. Um, my, I am stuck sometimes in these patterns, right? So sometimes this hitting, you know, they they know I want my body to stop, but they're not able to. Mm-hmm. It's a motor issue of initiation, execution, and termination of the of the. And so understanding that. So if you can imagine, if we look at motor uh, behaviors like that, well, then all of a sudden. I didn't mean to yell, I meant to whisper. But that's a motor, you know, that's a motor, um, uh, like, execution of, of your muscles in your face. I didn't mean to push you, I meant to touch you. But my body just went too far. So if I, I really believe that we need to start looking at autism. Like, the way sometimes that we look at Parkinson's, you're not mm-hmm. fully able to control your body. Therefore, I am more compassionate as to what I see in the outside. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, Maria, when I think of sensory-seeking behaviors and sensory aversions, I can easily think of people that I know that show some features of that. And even with myself, I wish I could uh, do away with wearing socks and wristwatches because I really don't like the feel of them. Um, Can sensory behaviors also be seen in typically developing children? Oh my goodness, we all have sensory processing preferences. That's what we're called. That's what they call. You know, I I certainly like certain things and, and not like certain things. I and also sometimes we can experience a bit of that issue. Like for example for me when I'm driving, like driving here, you know, getting on the highway, I always notice I can't listen to music and get on the highway at the same <laughs> oh. time. Because I need I need to block that like mute because my body all of a sudden goes in a stress mode. And I can only manage one thing, which is merging, right? So, and, and it's so interesting. I'm like, oh my goodness, I cannot process sensation when I'm merging. I just can't. So we all have our sensory processing preferences. The issue is when that difference um, gets in the way of your function. And it, and it affects you to such an extent that you're not able to do the things that you want to do, need to do, or, or um, have to do, um, or love to do. So that's when we intervene. So by saying that, if a child is happily looking at like a lava lamp and enjoying that sensory input, because sometimes, you know, by the same token, like some people on the spectrum will tell us that they experience this wonderful, um, I don't even know what to describe them. Like they, they have almost like an out-of-body experience with sensory input. Do we need to intervene with that? No. You know, it's not affecting anybody. We're only intervening in what's causing distress. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. And that kind of touches on what we were going to ask next about, like, so 
what determines if the sensory behaviors are, are more problematic or causing impairment. So that's a good way of looking at it. Does a child's sensory needs change as they develop? So um, are sensory processing challenges, the ones that you're seeing in, in children and as they get older into youth, present differently with age? So what I would say to that is that um, human beings, we get better at predicting what we don't like. <laughs> so <laughs> what we will do as we get older is we'll avoid things that we don't like. So all of a sudden, I don't like avocado. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to eat it. No one's telling me to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. I don't like going to a concert. It's too loud. I'm not going. I, you know, I don't like to be in crowds in the mall. No. So it gets better because we get better at figuring out what it is that we are not able to manage. And so we, uh, as creative people as we all are, figure out other ways to do things. Yeah. And yeah. that's why we see fewer reactions as we get older. And that's why I'm not wearing socks today. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so we, we spent a lot of time talking about um, the difficulties that can arise. What does therapy or, or intervention look like for sensory-seeking behaviors or aversions with children with ASD? Um, oh, that's another one-hour conversation. <laughs> um, but I would say... Um, there's many things that we can do, uh, uh, again, using many lenses, but what occupational therapists uh, excel at is that we um, recommend sensory-based interventions. So it could be things like uh, using massage strategically uh, before difficult transitions, um, helping parents uh, understand um, the textures of food and how we can, what we call food chaining, so make it so that we in increase a child's food repertoire um, in a way that feels safe to the child. So again, sensory-based interventions could be something like a weighted vest, or it could be something like wearing um, compression clothing. It could be something like, uh, again, coming up with um, like something like jewelry, something that you can uh, direct the, the person to chew on something else instead of chewing on their own hand, um, a weighted backpack. It could be, um, all, there's all kinds of sensory-based interventions and, and uh, the list is um, long. Um, and then there's another uh, kind of therapy um, that we don't do often in Canada, but it's called sensory integration therapy. So, um, and that's called actually ASI, Air Sensory Integration Therapy. Um, it's got uh, great... Uh, um, validity behind it, um, some nice research studies behind it, and this is very much uh, an intervention that's done by trained occupational therapists, and it's a play-based intervention where what we do is we provide the child with um, uh, sensory experiences, um, and we're looking for the just right challenge. So when that child is able to meet that sensory input, and then we scaffold for them to the child to then be able to manage it better. And so it looks, so it's a, it's, it's a play-based child-led therapy, but the therapist is trained in all the domains of sensory processing that then they're able to help that child uh, process sensation better. And why is that one not um, practiced that much in Canada? It's because it has to be done like intensively. So it's like it's done like three times a week and it's about like, um, you know, 45 to uh, 60 minutes, three times a week. And also it needs a lot of equipment. Like we use a lot of swings and tunnels and uh, we need specific equipment. So you need a space like a gym. So in, at Blurview, we do have a sensory gym. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but we use swings mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing. Um, but to tr to do... Through ASI, it, it requires uh, an intense short period of treatment that um, we are um, in the private world that's being done, but not so much um, in, in the, the centers as of yet. Okay. Yeah. So in the intro, we were highlighting how you've worked in uh, various settings and with diverse populations. What do you consider to be the key ingredients in making therapy or intervention successful? Oh, partnership with parents like what I the first thing I, I will do um, is is parent coaching and and you know I am not the expert we are a team together and we are together working so I very much um, taking the parents ideas because they are the experts on their own kids and then we work together to come up with solutions 
So when we were talking ahead of time and kind of preparing for this episode, you also mentioned something with respect to just building parents' confidence in therapy. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so what I meant is that my role is also to empower parents for them to be able to provide. In my case, uh, I'm doing sensory-based interventions, not ASI. So to provide sensory-based interventions um, uh, confidently and effectively and to for them to feel that they are the drivers of their child's um, improvement, for them to feel that they can support and uh, their kids' um, functioning and improve their quality of life, and you know, to feel empowered as opposed to feeling like they have to bring the child to somebody else um, because they know better. So this is why, as therapists, and this is all therapists, we need to work. Um, uh, in relationships with parents and instead of us being the experts we provide parent coaching so we use that lens for for us to work together as a team yeah this whole area of sensory processing like sounds like it can be very tricky for parents to navigate and manage um, because ultimately their child's going to be in different environments right and they're not always necessarily going to have control over what happens in those settings you're highlighting like the the bell in school settings and so on. Um, I also have parents will describe how hard it is when their child's sensory behaviors show up in public and draw a lot of attention. What is there to help parents with this or how do you kind of help parents with that? Yeah, so remember a big thing of what we all need to do is looking at these environmental triggers, right? So if you're going to go to the grocery store, just being prepared, okay. First of all, do you know, you know, making that experience as short as possible and and giving yourself more chances of success. So maybe having, so you have a list and your child is then doing the check marks, you know, and so, and, or maybe your child is in the cart. So you're, or maybe your child is actually pushing the cart. So they get that proprioceptive, Mm -hmm. helpful, deep pressure input uh, in a way that's, that's uh, effective because, you know, they are helping you push the cart. Um, Another thing that parents tell me, you know, I take them to the grocery store and they're touching everything. I'm putting everything to their mouth. Well, you know, again, preempting that. So can you give your child, like, say, uh, something like a dried mango strip? And so they're actually chewing. And it's something that's that requires continuous chewing, deep pressure through the jaw. Again, that's helpful. Um, can you, so as you enter the store, can you already give your child that? And then, of course, if the child is then um, chewing their own thing, they're less likely to be touching other things. So a lot, again, the whole proactive part. So a lot of what we do is really uh, planning, um, strategically planning for things to be successful. And then very often they will be, no matter what your sensory issues are, if you have a plan. So another thing could be like having like um, a sensory toolkit with you so that you know that you have your ear defenders, that you know you have something like with a certain kind of texture in the bag. Um, maybe you have a cold drink. Maybe you have uh, you know something that they can drink through a straw because again, that's, that's regulating and, and helpful. And how many of us have coffee? Not because we need the coffee, it's because we want the sensory input that we're seeking to regulate ourselves and wake us up, right? So it's the same thing. So there's many things you can do. It just requires our knowledge of what the sensory input might be uh, in that environment and then just being prepared and, and trying to preempt some, some of the behaviors before they happen. So prevention goes a long way. Long way. Yeah. Long yeah. Way. yeah. And I can imagine too that, that like just having that plan could also boost parents' confidence Oh too. my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Like social stories, right? We talk about just the idea of letting the, the child know where they're going, what's going to happen, you know, how long we're going to be there. And this is what happens when we're leaving. So we do social stories for kids coming to our dental services, for example. Mm-hmm. And so they, they actually get to prepare and they have a script that they go through. Um, so again, predictability for all of us will ease our anxiety. So if we can add as much predictability as possible, and this is why our kids want predictability so badly, is because then they don't need to be anxious about it. Yeah. Yeah. You you gave us a great example earlier of a, a 12-year-old describing how some sensory issues um, felt or what the experience was like with chalk uh, on a chalkboard in class. And a lot of what we know about sensory processing difficulties actually comes from older youth and adults with ASD detailing their experiences. 
So how have first-hand accounts shaped your professional understanding and strategies? Well, for me, and, and I tell you, it's so funny, I, I got onto social media two years ago now, um, and, and really just Twitter, and I, I do have an Instagram account, but um, in Twitter, and I didn't know this, it's actually lots of autistic self-advocates who will tell you about their sensory experiences. They they will talk about it. There's um, they, they, they use their, their actual hashtag of actually autistic, and, and so everybody's... And I just learn so much from social media. Like, I've learned so much. And, you know, I'll ask a question and people will answer. And oh. so very sometimes when I just don't know what's going on, I say, well, what, what do people think might be happening with this kid? Um, obviously not providing any detail that doesn't mm-hmm. need to, you know. But it's so interesting. So once I started to actually listen to what they were saying, then I realized even more so how important sensory processing is yeah. mm-hmm. and how important it is that we know about it, that we know what to do, that we know how to support uh, people on the spectrum because it is, as you said, up to 96% of people on the spectrum will experience significant sensory issues that impairs quality of life. And so um, to me, that was just eye-opening and I've been able to connect with um, autistic individuals um, just through social media alone. And uh, yeah, I've learned a lot from the people that we serve. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. Um, we're actually recording this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's a lot of controversy right now about the mandatory wearing of masks. Um, and this becomes a much bigger issue, I would imagine, for parents of young children with sensory issues. Um, and so when a child has limited communication skills, we often hear a parent's stories of meltdowns, some of which include the self-injurious behaviours that we might see, so what tips do you have for parents who are struggling to get their children to wear these masks? Yeah, actually, um, what I will give you a handout that you can add to the show notes. And I think it's it says everything in there. It's super helpful. But again, you know, when, when we think about what we've been talking about, this idea of, first of all, adding predictability. So, you know, presenting the mask, having the child maybe do some like arts and crafts with the mask, you know, maybe decorating it in some way mm-hmm. that they like. Um, we talked about accommodation. So instead of having the strings go behind their ears, which is usually the issue, you know, can you make the string go around like a hat with like two buttons and the, and the mask is actually um, mm-hmm. being held up by the hat? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what the expectations are around your mask wearing, can we do a social story, explain, you know, in this is when you wear a mask. Mm-hmm. When you're home, we take the mask off and so on. So... Everything that we talked about, we can do it all with the mask. And, and yes, you, you may have some, um, definitely some tactile, uh, oversensory, um, oversensitivities to it. Um, so again, could we see if we provide some uh, tactile input, some massage to the face before you put on the mask? Are they then more able to wear it? So, yeah, it's endless what you can do. But I will, I will um, uh, give you that handout. And it's by another OT, actually. Uh, uh, somebody I also met through social media. Uh, media. Her name is Hina Mahud, and she did a wonderful um, handout for kids who have sensory issues around mask wearing. And I think that will That's that will great. be a, a great resource for parents. That's terrific. So we'll make sure we put that on our website. Um, I have one more question, and this is a question that um, we're asking all of our guests. And it's specific to um, creating what we're now calling our toolbox, right, for parents that have children that um, are autistic. Um, And we wanted to know, even though sensory behaviours can vary a lot in terms of how they present, um, is there anything that you can suggest for parents who are currently waiting for an ASD assessment right now um, that they can do with respect to understanding and responding to their child's sensory needs? Um. I'm going to give you two. Um, the first one is to really take, you know, Carol Gray's words to heart. And Carol Gray is the person that uh, actually invented the social stories. And she says, you know, there are no bizarre behaviors. There are just behaviors that are poorly understood. Mm-hmm. So first of all, when you see a behavior, just say, okay, there's a reason for this behavior. And if it's not being caused by pain, then there's something I can do about it. So knowing that there's actually something you can do about it, you just may know what it is yet, but there is, and, yeah. and you will get that knowledge. And then the other thing that I would say is that um, 
you are able to parent this child and that you with support and in partnership with the therapist and your team, you will be able to, to manage and help your child move forward and just not to despair. Mm-hmm. Those are great words of confidence for a parent, right? Who probably feels very much out of control yes. a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I'd like to thank you so much, Moira, for joining us today to talk about sensory processing issues. I feel like you provided us with a wealth of information, and even Mm -hmm. us as clinicians doing the interview have learned so much. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got uh, a lot of resources um, uh, and links available that we can share on our website as well for our listeners. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, feel free to email us at asdengage at hallandbloorview.ca.